All right. Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We're uh, quickly heading towards the end. And this is a wonderful passage of scripture. So I'll read Romans chapter 15 and verse 14 through 24. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God to be minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but... As it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who had not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while." This is the part of the epistle to the Romans where Paul tells the Christians in Rome that they are a link in a ladder, a gospel ladder that extends beyond them and extends to Spain. And so um, Paul's uh, gospel explanation, and that's what Romans is, the uh, majority of this book of Romans is a careful uh, and powerful explanation of uh, the gospel, But uh, the gospel explanation is for gospel ministry. And uh, it was written not only that these Roman Christians might know the gospel well for themselves, but uh, so that they might proclaim it to others and help Paul proclaim this gospel to others as well. And uh, this is not an optional part of the gospel or periphery to the gospel that you learn it, you understand it in order to pass it on uh, to others. But this is a central part of uh, the gospel. The gospel of Christ, if understood rightly, embraced and trusted, turns you outward to others, to the needs of others. Uh, in service to God, a God whose glory is to give grace, favor, and care, and love to the undeserving. And it's the gospel itself that teaches you that God is like that. In fact, you'll find a God like that a God who has concern and care for others and grace uh, for others and whose glory is to show that grace to others. You'll find that kind of God nowhere else except for in the gospel of Christ. So the gospel, if understood rightly, turns you outward in ministry towards others, replaces the life of sin and self with a life of uh, righteousness and a life like God's own life and a life of love uh, towards others and turns you outward even to those that you've never met, strangers that you've never met, not only to reach them yourself with the gospel message, but to help others to reach them too 
And actually, only the gospel can turn you outward, genuinely, towards others in uh, that way. Well, let me give you a, a summary, a little bit of a summary of our passage, uh, because there's a picture that comes together in the passage that we're going to uh, cover, and I don't want to wait till the end to put all the parts um, together. In this passage, Paul's going to explain that his life's ministry has been to found and plant churches where they've never been planted before. Uh, so he's, he's, uh, his ministry has been to extend the frontier of the gospel from east to west, generally, um, and uh, not in a straight line because the churches that he planted needed attention and needed help and needed encouragement. And so it was, uh, you know, two steps forward, one step back all the time. Uh, but uh, the, the general direction of uh, Paul's ministry was to expand the frontier of the gospel from east to west. Remember when uh, the gospel jumped from Asia, where Paul had been ministering to Europe. Uh, There's a Macedonian call, come over and help us. Uh, and then Paul came and he ministered. The first that he ministered was a, a, a lady named uh, Lydia, who the Lord opened her heart. She was the first European to believe in uh, the gospel. And a church was founded in Philippi and in other places uh, as well. And so Paul was pushing uh, the frontier of, uh, of, of the gospel forward and uh, westward, and, and yet as he's doing that, as he's pushing further westward, he knew that there was already a church west of him that had already been founded, uh, and that Paul did not found it, he did not plant it, in fact, he had never visited there, it was the church in Rome. So how was the church in Rome planted if Paul didn't plant it, the missionary to the Gentiles who was pushing westward? Well, I don't think the New Testament necessarily says on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first came in Jerusalem, the first church was there in Jerusalem. There were Jews from all over the world, and a number of the countries are mentioned, and also visitors from Rome are mentioned. Perhaps they heard the gospel on that day and took it back to uh, Rome. Rome is uh, described as uh, the place where things from all over the empire, no matter what they were, they would always also settle in Rome. It's kind of the, the drain of all things. One uh, Roman historian uh, described Rome as the place where all things hideous uh, and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. And he said that to describe Christianity. He was describing how Christianity came to Rome, that he was not a friend to um, uh, Christianity. So um, Rome sort of reflected everywhere else in uh, the empire. And so uh, the church in Rome uh, was founded somehow without Paul in uh, in in uh, Europe before, um, in sort of the heart of Europe in a way, uh, before uh, Paul uh, made it there. So Paul, as he's advancing westward and advancing the gospel westward, he's running out of room as he gets closer and closer to Rome, which is a good problem for him to have. But he aspired to minister on the other side of Rome. He aspired to sort of leapfrog over uh, Rome, but not to ignore them. He wanted to establish contact with them, not only contact with the church at Rome, but gospel unity with the church uh, at Rome uh, as well. He wanted them to help him to minister west of them and to take the gospel forward uh, past them. And I'm sure he wanted them uh, to help 
also the churches that he would plant west of them to be a sister church and to help an older sister church uh, to help these uh, other uh, churches. So he's going to kind of talk about parts of that picture throughout, but I kind of want to just give a summary of that uh, situation, and then we'll look uh, more carefully at what Paul says to the Romans here at the end of uh, near the end of his uh, epistle. So two parts to help divide up our passage. First, we're going to look at Paul's explanation of his apostolic ministry as his reason for writing this letter. And that's in verses 14 to 21. And then we'll look at Paul's explanation of his intention to preach the gospel in Spain. And that's in verse 22 to uh, to uh, 24. He begins in verse uh, 14 by writing these verses. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God. So uh, in these verses, Paul explains his boldness in writing this letter to a church that he did not found and had never uh, visited. And uh, in this letter, he addresses them forthrightly. He addresses them as friends. He addresses them as close friends. And uh, this uh, this letter, what gave him the right to do that? What gave him the right to speak to them so familiarly and, and even sort of authoritatively if he really hadn't been a part of uh, this church? Well, he uh, mentions in these uh, verses what it wasn't that gave him the right to speak to them this way in this letter. And then he gets to what it was. But it wasn't because he perceived some sort of lack in their church. Or had heard, you know, this church in Rome, they're, they're, um, they need, they need a great deal of help. They're, uh, they don't have what they need. And so that's why he's going to write them a letter. No, he says that. He says, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. He knew they were full of goodness, not because of themselves. He knew that it was a church full of sinners. Uh, like us, but because of what he knew about the Lord and the way that he equips each church. And so he knew that the church was full of goodness, that it was filled with all knowledge. Uh, they knew the truth. They didn't need for Paul uh, to tell them. And uh, not only did they know the truth, but they were able to apply it to each other, to help for each of them to help each other to know the right course of conduct. To, uh, to take. So he's, he's writing to a complete church. He's not writing to an incomplete church, a church in great need, a church that would be uh, incomplete without uh, some sort of outside uh, influence. One commentator put it this way, and I liked it. He, he said about uh, the church, that in it, the church in Rome, none were so wise that they had nothing more to learn, and none were so inept that they had nothing of value to share. And so the church... Uh, was able to minister to one another. They needed uh, one another, and uh, Paul did not write to them uh, because of any lack. He says in verse 15, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. Paul did not assume when he wrote this letter to Rome about uh, the gospel that he was bringing theological insights that they had never heard of. He's writing to remind them. And of course, every Christian learns about the gospel from Romans, even uh, uh, thoughts that uh, wouldn't occur to you uh, anywhere else. But uh, as you read the, the, the uh, letter to the Romans, even if you have an understanding of the gospel as a child, you're being reminded of things that you already know. 
And so Paul says that uh, to them. He uh, assumes he's uh, writing to them so as uh, to remind them uh, again. And so he speaks to them at the end of this letter very courteously, respectfully, uh, almost as a peer, you, you might say, certainly as, as a peer uh, uh, before the Lord, uh, and says, uh, I wrote not so as to inform you of something totally new, but so as to remind you of what you believe and to strengthen you in it. And he says this, I've written to you very boldly on some points. Very boldly on some points. You can think back to what we've been uh, going through in uh, Romans. You might say, which ones? You know, he wrote. He wrote to them. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So, in, in that sense, the whole thing was written uh, boldly. Uh, but uh, you can think of some of the very bold points that he made, such as all have sinned and fallen short uh, of the glory of God, or speaking to them very boldly of a righteousness from God outside of law. Having nothing, that's a bold statement, uh, to make, uh, about a righteousness that has nothing to do with obey, obeying God's law. It's outside of God's law. And of course, it actually teaches you to obey Him, but it starts out outside. You have to understand that first. It's outside of God's law. Uh, or, uh, the, speak to them of a justification, a, a declaration of righteousness in God's sight that's by faith, not by works but by faith alone. That's a bold uh, point uh, to make. Or uh, he wrote to them, where sin abounded in Christ and in the reign of Christ, grace abounds all the more. Well, that's a bold claim uh, uh, to make. Or uh, he wrote to them, for those who love God, all things are working together for good. Well, that's a bold claim. You know, look around at all the, all the, all the things uh, around you. Uh, in the same section, he wrote to them about uh, all the difficulties that are, uh, and deep trials that a Christian might experience and says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not just conquerors, overcomers is the word, but more than conquerors, conquerors with enough left over to uh, a spare. So uh, maybe uh, maybe Paul means those things when he says, I've written to you very boldly on some points. Maybe he was reviewing uh, some of those points uh, in his mind. But I wonder too, if he speaks to them, as, especially as he speaks to them about speaking to them very boldly, taking liberty to speak to them, I wonder if he's speaking, uh, especially of the place in Romans where he applied the gospel very specifically, and in this matter of the uh, the uh, food and holidays and the differences of practice in the Church of Rome that threatened to uh, uh, destroy their unity in Christ, and so threatened to sideline their usefulness uh, to others as well. Paul was very bold to them uh, in speaking about their relationships with one another and said, don't judge one another, don't despise one another, accept one another as Christ has accepted you and also don't cause the weak brother to stumble in his relationship with the Lord in the way in which you use your uh, uh, freedoms. So uh, Paul was bold and uh, he's explaining why he was bold in this letter. Actually, at this point, he's, he's explaining the reasons that weren't the reasons why he's bold. It's not because of any lack, but uh, it's a different reason why he felt uh, bold uh, with them. It wasn't because he had founded the church. And so Paul wasn't able to write to them like he wrote to um, uh, his the church that he founded in Corinth uh, when he wrote to them. And they were giving him all kinds of uh, trouble. He was bold with them too, but for a different reason. He said, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. 
And that's why you should listen to me. And that's why Paul's very bold to speak to uh, the Corinthian believers. He said, the gospel made me your father because I, I, I'm the one who spoke the gospel to you. He can't say that at all to uh, the Roman believers because it's not true. He did not become their father through uh, the gospel. So he doesn't speak to them uh, boldly for that reason. Then why? Not because of any lack he perceived in them. But for this reason, it's because of Paul's apostolic ministry to the Gentiles that the Lord gave him to be a minister to the Gentiles in an important way. And it's a project in which the Roman church fits as an important piece in that project. And so that's what he's going to explain to them about the reason why he's writing them this letter boldly and speaking to them uh, uh, boldly and uh, also showing them their place in uh, the gospel ministry and um the ministry that he is a, a part of. So he says, verse 15, I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because, here's the reason, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by uh, the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I'm writing to you because of a grace. It was given to me, and he uses the very same word as as he uses for salvation, grace, God's favor to the undeserving. But uh, here he's using it for something that was given to him at the same time, a ministry, a ministry to uh, the Gentiles, and especially a ministry to advance the gospel in places where it was never uh, proclaimed uh, before. This ministry is both a gift for Paul in that it's unearned, it's undeserved. In fact, he was the least likely person you would ever select to have this ministry. He was persecuting the church. He was in the act of persecuting the church when God gave him uh, this ministry. And yet it's also a responsibility that he has uh, as well that gave him warrant to speak boldly to the Romans and to tell them how they fit into uh, the ministry that God has given him and ask him for help in uh, the midst of that uh, ministry. And so that's why he writes uh, this letter. As he writes about this ministry that was given, the first thing he says about it is that it's a grace, that it was given to him uh, from God. And then there's sort of, kind of almost an explosion of priestly language that he uses to describe this uh, uh, ministry that has been given him. That shouldn't be a great surprise. In fact, in this letter of Romans, he described the whole life of Christian obedience as an offering that each Christian ministers to God as a priest and it's uh, pleasing to the Lord. The Lord is pleased. He's not pleased by uh, any of the gifts of unbelievers, but amazingly, grace upon grace, he's pleased with our obedience that we offer up to the Lord uh, as weak as it is, uh, as imperfect uh, as it is. And yet when a, a believer obeys the Lord in faith, motivated by faith, motivated by gratitude for the gospel, the Lord accepts that. As, a, as an offering that's pleasing in his sight. And so Paul describes the whole Christian life as not being conformed to the, to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And he describes it as presenting your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of uh, worship. Well, in this case, Paul describes his offering to God not as uh, works, that please uh, the Lord, but as people, as people and as Gentiles that he's uh, ministering to. And so Paul says that a grace was given to him to be a minister of Christ Jesus 
to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul has a picture of himself. He's ministering to people, but it's it's a ministry to the Lord. Uh, and those who are converted to the gospel are like an offering that Paul's offering up to the Lord that's acceptable in uh, the Lord's sight and uh, pleasing to uh, the Lord. Well, I said that Paul, when he starts speaking about his ministry and how the, the Romans fit into it, he starts speaking like a priest uh, and using a, a, a language of uh, a priest. He also begins speaking with the language of uh, ambition, aspiration, boasting, daring. And you'll notice that in verse 17 as, as Paul continues. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as the Lyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, and and so on. I'll stop uh, there, but you'll notice uh, that uh, Paul speaks of uh, an, an ambition, to and, and a reason for boasting in the Lord. You say, well, was Paul just an ambitious person? Was this a selfish ambition uh, that Paul uh, had and the reason why he found reason for boasting? No, he says, I'm, I, it's not me that's doing it. It's Christ that's doing it in me. And that's why it's I have reason uh, for boasting. It's not a worldly boasting. It's a holy boasting in Christ. And it's not for myself, but it's for uh, others. Uh, as well. And so it's in Christ Jesus that I've found reason for boasting in this ministry and these things pertaining uh, to God. And I'm not presuming to boast in anything except what Christ has accomplished in me, resulting in obedience of the Gentiles by word and uh, by deed. Paul speaks of um, doing, offering up this offering to the Lord, doing this ministry that it's been given to him in the power of Christ and especially in the power of signs and wonders in the power of uh, the Holy Spirit. And so you'll remember this about Paul. He performed miracles were performed at his hands, sometimes dramatic miracles of healing. Sometimes people uh, touching a, a handkerchief that Paul had touched and being restored uh, uh, and healed, uh, raising the dead. Uh, someone who died um, um, and then was healed by Paul um, instantly, shortly after uh, they had... Uh, died. And scripture speaks of signs and miracles, especially associated with the ministry of the gospel, and especially, as here, in the role of confirmation where the gospel was first preached. And so when someone new shows up in town speaking of a crucified Savior, something that would seem insane uh, on the face of it, something that would sort of bolster and at least give them a hearing before people is was often uh, a healing to be performed, to say, well, this is this is something you should listen to. This is something that comes from the Lord because it comes with uh, power. And uh, scripture itself, the New Testament, talks about the sign, uh, the, the uh, gift of healings and miracles and these dramatic uh, uh, gifts ceasing when the New Testament is uh, completed. And I think today we have something that uh, people who first heard the gospel in their land for the first time didn't have, and that is we have church history. 
church history, which wins a hearing for the strange message of uh, the gospel that uh, out of a, a group of uh, 12 disciples or a, a hundred or so on the day of Pentecost, uh, the gospel, God has seen to it that his gospel prevails and it spreads and it doesn't go extinct. And here we are at the very ends of uh, the earth. And so that uh, wins a hearing uh, today. We uh, have what they don't have, which is all of church history and the testimony of the Holy Spirit throughout uh, the ages, keeping his church uh, alive. And they have something we don't. We don't have, which is miracles performed in our presence. And sometimes we could um, uh, wish for that. But it had a special purpose and, and uh, the same purpose that you see here. And so Paul talks about uh, preaching the gospel, advancing the frontier of the gospel. And he mentions here that he does it in the power of uh, signs and wonders and in the power of uh, the spirit. And then kind of a progress report on uh, the ministry that's been given to him. So that from Jerusalem and roundabout, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so um, his gospel... Paul's gospel ministry moved from east to west, and so he uh, speaks about kind of the easternmost point of it where he ministered, which was Jerusalem. And then the westernmost point, as far as, here's where he's gotten to, as far as uh, Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, where's Illyricum? I don't know what kind of map you have in your mind of Europe, how filled in it is, and I don't, I'm not using any PowerPoint or anything like that, uh, this morning, just preaching. Uh, but let me describe where, uh, Illyricum is. Um, it's opposite of Italy, across from the Adriatic Sea, but it's north of Greece, and it's even north of Macedonia, which is north of, uh, Greece. Uh, it's where the country of, uh, Yugoslavia used to be in the Balkan. Uh, region and uh, today I think the countries there include Bosnia and Croatia and uh, Serbia. And this is Paul says this is as far west as I've gotten, and it's right on the doorstep of Rome. The next the next place to go would be Italy, and uh, would be uh, Rome. Uh, when did Paul go there? Well, if you look at a Bible map that you might have in the back of your Bible, you won't find any arrows of Paul's travels going into um, uh, Illyricum. And the reason why is because it's not mentioned in Acts that he ever went there. And so um, he went there. He must have gone there on, on, as kind of a side trip uh, when he was at another one of his westernmost uh, places where he went. So maybe when he was in Corinth, he spent quite some time in Corinth. Uh, he was able to go into Illyricum. Um, or maybe when he was in Macedonia, when he would have been even closer uh, to them, he was able to go there. And that was as far as uh, his efforts at uh, pushing the boundary, the westernmost boundary of the gospel uh, had gotten. And he tells them so from Jerusalem to uh, as far as uh, Illyricum. Another interesting thing about Illyricum that kind of caught my attention is that this would be the first time in Illyricum where Paul would have experienced a culture that was more Latin than Greek. And everywhere Paul went, he could write him a letter in Greek, and it could be read in the church, and everybody would understand it. And the reason why is because um, everywhere where Alexander the great soldiers went spoke Greek. But uh, they went east. They went east from Macedonia, where they originated uh, from. And Illyricum is, is north of there. And so it was a place where more Latin was spoken. Perhaps the gospel would have to go across a language barrier for uh, the first time, and perhaps that's what made also make Paul start aspiring to preach the gospel in Spain, 
which was a place that was also more Latin than uh, Greek and a place where uh, Latin was spoken more than Greek. In Rome, because everything from the empire came to Rome, Greek was spoken, and so this letter could be read uh, in the church there. But uh, the gospel was uh, going past uh, boundaries and uh, expanding into Illyricum, and uh, uh, Paul uh, told them sort of a, a progress uh, report of uh, that. And so Paul says, uh, Thus, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. And this is a good way of saying uh, that he's pushing the gospel forward. That's what he's interested uh, in doing. And he backs it up with a scripture. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. The passage that Paul quotes about people who, who haven't heard news before hearing and people who uh, have not heard understanding it comes from, and I'll have you turn here with me because it's a wonderful portion of scripture in the Old Testament, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 52, and uh, it it really belongs with Isaiah 53. It's a place where a chapter division is not in a great place in uh, scripture. And I mention that because Isaiah 53 is one of the most amazing passages in uh, scripture. Isaiah 53 is a place where Christ's crucifixion and resurrection is prophesied by the prophet Isaiah uh, more than 700 years in advance with such detail that, that it could be no, no one other than Christ uh, himself. Not only does Isaiah do that 700 years in advance, but it's also arguably the clearest statement of the meaning of the atonement as well in Isaiah 53. If it's not here in Isaiah, then it's probably in Romans. Uh, but it's a very uh, clear uh, statement. And as, as uh, this part sort of uh, begins at Isaiah 52, Verse 14, where Isaiah prophesies to Israel, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouth on him for what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. And what he's actually speaking about here is the crucified form of Christ where he's marred more than any other man and his forms more than the sons of men. In other words, he doesn't even look like a human being when he's hanging from the cross. And this is the message that's going to go out. It's a message that people have a hard time believing could even be told. Um, and so what's prophesied is uh, about kings and nations and Gentiles is what, what they what they have uh, not been told they will see. And uh, what they have not heard they will understand and they're going to be shocked by this. And they're going to be shocked by the meaning of it what it means about their sin and about about uh, God's uh, grace. And Paul says, this is the passage that characterizes my ministry because I like to speak to those who've never heard anything about Christ before and tell them about God himself being crucified in their place. And they're just shocked by that. It's the last thing that they would ever expect uh, about uh, God. It's a shocking message and, and uh, to those who have never heard it before. And so Paul says, this is a verse that uh, characterizes my ministry. I saw a bumper sticker yesterday, uh, actually, and it said, uh, body piercing saved my life. And I thought, what? that kind of caught me. I thought, what is that? And I looked a little closer at it, uh, and it was it was a nail-pierced hand. So it's a, it's a Christian bumper sticker, and I, I'm not necessarily recommending you put that on your car as your way to uh, spread the gospel. But uh, the point is, the message of the gospel is a shocking message, and we're so used to the cross that sometimes we need something like that to kind of uh, recover the shock of the gospel message. Yes, 
his body being pierced is what saved my life and him being hung up on a cross uh, as a cruel instrument of uh, a death uh, is what uh, saves my soul. And so Paul himself was a strange figure coming into town and he liked to tell them a message that was totally shocking to them about a crucified savior. And he liked to tell it to people that didn't say, well, I've heard something about that already, but who would be totally from, from uh, never hearing it before uh, would hear about this. And of course, the meaning of that message is not simply to shock them, but to tell them that their sin before God is totally different than they would ever imagine their sin before God, much worse to deserve and to require a savior uh, like that. And also that God's love towards them is totally different than they could ever imagine God's love to be to send a savior like that and to submit himself to be that savior and uh, to submit himself uh, in that way. And so uh, telling this shocking message to those who've never heard it before, just like the Old Testament uh, promised, is what Paul aspired to do. Or I should say what Paul aspired to do included that. And so he didn't necessarily aspire to preach the gospel in a place where people had maybe heard something about it uh, before. In fact, in Rome, where their church was probably just a few hundred people, and there were a million people in uh, the city, Paul considered that a place where he wasn't going to minister. He was going to use them to help him minister beyond uh, them, but it was a place where uh, someone else uh, had already laid the foundation and Paul didn't want to build on a foundation that someone else had laid, but he considered the, the Holy Spirit to be urging him onward and uh, past uh, that. So uh, first, the first part of our passage is Paul's explanation of his apostolic ministry as his reason for writing. So I wrote you this. I wrote you it boldly because you fit in to what the Lord has given to me to do. And so uh, because of the character of Paul's project of preaching the gospel in places that are new, that's why he wrote this letter to the Romans, and that's why he was bold to speak to them about the gospel and about their place in the gospel. The second part of uh, our passage is Paul's explanation of his intention to preach the gospel in Spain. And his point in telling the Romans is, you can help uh, in this. So this is in uh, verse uh, 22. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. Paul says, because of my ministry of preaching the gospel where it's never been prevented, been presented before, for that reason, I've also been prevented from coming to you even though it's been my desire uh, to do that. And so he used it in the passive tense. Something prevented me from coming to you. And what is it that prevented Paul from coming uh, to them? You might say, well, it was the Holy Spirit. There's a passage in uh, Paul's missionary journeys where the Holy Spirit forbade them to uh, minister in a certain place. And actually, he was pushing them westward. Uh, and you might say, well, that's the case here. But actually, I think the thing that prevents Paul from coming to them is his ambition to preach the gospel where it had not been told before. That's what had prevented him from coming uh, to them. He was busy uh, preaching the gospel in areas leading up to their doorstep. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I had for many years a longing to come to you when I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and be helped on my way there by you after I've first enjoyed your company for a little while. And so Paul tells them, I've been longing to come to you on my way to Spain. And he gives them uh, his desire, his ambition to preach the gospel in uh, Spain. 
and he tells them he's out of room uh, uh, in in uh, approaching uh, them. So why Spain? Why Spain? Why did Paul aspire to preach the gospel in Spain? Well, Spain was the western edge of the known world, of the civilized world, you might say, the world that they uh, knew of. Uh, Gibraltar marked the, the end uh, of it. Um, Spain is mentioned in the Old Testament probably as Tarshish, would be a Phoenician colony in Spain, and the Phoenicians were great uh, sailors and established a number of colonies. Uh, one in Tarshish, it's not 100% clear where that is, but it seems to be in Spain. It's a place where Solomon imported every three years gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks uh, when his reign uh, was at its apex. It's a place where Jonah wanted to go when he wanted to get away as far away from God's call uh, to Assyria and to Nineveh as he possibly could go. He said, well, I'll go to, I'll go as far as I can think of. I'll go to Tarshish. I'll go to uh, Spain. And so it's uh, mentioned uh, there. Paul knew there were other gospel ministers carrying the gospel to other points of the compass, south to Egypt or east to India. Uh, but the Lord had specifically pushed him westward, and he, he set his sights on the farthest west that he could think of, and he aspired to preach uh, the gospel in uh, Spain. And so he tells them that and tells them, uh, I'd like to be helped on my way uh, to Spain. I have this ambition. I want you to catch the vision, too, and I want you to help me. And after I've ministered uh, with you for a little while, I want you to help me to uh, reach uh, Spain. Well, let me ask you to consider this. It's not found in the passage. Uh, but did Paul make it to Spain? Did he accomplish his goal? He wanted to. Did he realize his uh, aspiration? Uh, certainly not right away. Not right away. Paul was in Corinth when he wrote Romans. And as he wrote to them, I'd like to uh, be with you and then be on my way to Spain. He was probably expecting that this might happen within a couple months, that he'd be in Rome he had to take care of one thing first, a travel to Jerusalem. That's the next uh, passage. Uh, but that soon he would be in Rome and then on his way to Spain. And it didn't turn out like that at all. Paul went to Jerusalem. He almost lost his life in Jerusalem. He was arrested. He languished in prison for years in, uh, in Israel, in Caesarea for about two years and more. He traveled to Rome, not freely, like he was expecting to visit them, but as a prisoner and then waited for two more years to uh, get his uh, hearing uh, from Caesar. And in fact, that's the point where the Acts account ends. Paul's still in prison in Rome. Years have passed uh, since then. And so his plan didn't turn out like he expected at all, as he's ready now to take the next step and excited about it and telling uh, the, the Roman uh, believers about their part uh, in it. Um Paul did have a few more years left in which he was a free man. He seems to be he was released from prison after the Acts story ends. That's when he wrote first uh, Timothy and Titus and then uh, later second Timothy. During that time, we find Paul not west of um, Rome, but east of Rome, attending to the churches that he's already planted in Macedonia and in Crete. And then Paul was caught after a, a couple of years uh, of ministry and uh, died in Rome, caught in Nero's persecution of uh, believers and gave his life to the Lord and sealed his testimony of his life in that way. And perhaps during those years, those couple of years, uh, maybe Paul made it to Spain, maybe, uh, um, because that was certainly his desire to do so. There's not a record of that in scripture. 
I remember sitting in class in seminary and believe it or not, there was a whole class period devoted to whether or not Paul made it to Spain. And I was sitting in the back of the class next to a guy from the Netherlands who was Dutch. And uh, at one point I asked him, I said, well, do you think Paul made it to Spain? And he said, of course, of course. He goes, Europe is small. Europe is small. You guys think it's so big. It's a small, it's small. <laughs> so he thought that he uh, had made it to uh, Spain. There's a couple of early church witnesses who uh, believe that Paul made it to Spain. They just flat out said, yes, he made it to uh, Spain. The history and the archaeology of Spain apparently suggest that Christianity never made it to Spain until maybe more like the second or third century. And so that would indicate maybe Paul did not make it uh, to Spain as he uh, aspired to do. So did he make it to Spain? Maybe, maybe not. If not, though, if not, though, I want you to consider this. If he didn't make it to Spain, then God allowed Paul to dream of going to Spain, not so he could go there, but so that he could write this epistle to the Romans. And so the Lord uses our plans. The Lord uses our aspirations sometimes not to accomplish those things in themselves, but to accomplish something totally different. The Lord's plans uh, for us. We're uh, starting this uh, leadership project this week. It's not too late for any men to join uh, uh, with it and, and uh, to study once a month about uh, what Scripture says, about what the Lord uh, wants for a leader to be and for a man to be uh, as a leader in the way that he's called uh, to be that. Uh, but uh, it's not true that a leader never needs to plan anything, never needs to venture anything, never needs to risk uh, anything, because if God wants you to do something, he'll bring it to you and lay it on your doorstep as you plan nothing and venture nothing and risk nothing. Paul would disagree uh, with that. And so trusting in the sovereignty of God, relying on the sovereignty of God, transforms human planning uh, so that it's not presumptuous. That's what we say, if God wills, when we make a plan, we're taught by scripture to say that, nor is it a fearful planning. But trusting in the sovereignty of God doesn't replace human planning. So Paul, Paul made plans. He had an aspiration, a, a big goal to make it to uh, Spain. And he, he planned it and he uh, spoke about it to others uh, in advance. Whether it came to fruition exactly like Paul planned or not, the Lord certainly used it to bring about good and to bring about good even in our lives uh, as well uh, by uh, giving us this wonderful epistle to Romans that was part of Paul's project to get to Spain. That was, that was the purpose of why he wrote uh, this letter. So the scripture says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's the Lord who has the final say. But it doesn't say it's bad that man plans his way. No, he says the mind of man plans his way, and the Lord directs uh, his steps, and the Lord uh, uh, puts all of that uh, uh, together. So let me ask you this question. What do you aspire to with a holy ambition? Not, not a worldly ambition. Paul, Paul spoke about his ambition and he said, I'm, I'm not speaking of myself. I'm speaking of what Christ accomplishes through me. I'm speaking about a holy uh, ambition that I'm aspiring towards. What do you, to, what do you aspire to with a holy ambition to render up as a priest to God? Not for yourself, but for others. What do you aspire to render up to God for prayer, for fellowship, for evangelism? What do you aspire to that risks looking foolish, that risks uh, trying something that doesn't work out, 
trying something and something else works out instead that you never could have reached without uh, planning and moving towards that and arriving at uh, something else. What do you plan to that risks making you look foolish showing that you're not omniscient, <laughs> that you don't know the future, that you are not uh, God uh, himself? What would you dare to do? What would you aspire to do if you really believe that a sovereign God had your back, was working all things together for good? Where did Paul get the courage to aspire to preach the gospel in Spain? This man who was the least likely to be someone who would bear the gospel of Christ in unknown uh, lands. And he desires not only uh, to preach the gospel where he's preached it, but to double the distance and preach it all the way to the end of the world to uh, Spain. Well, it comes from Paul, first of all, understanding that his sins are forgiven in Christ. It comes from the same for you, understanding that your sins are forgiven, that God is pleased with you and not for your sake, not for uh, your deserving. In fact, that's why you need a savior is because he's not pleased with you uh, for your own sake, but he's pleased with you in Christ. And he loves you in Christ. In fact, no one here loves you more than Christ himself loves you. Hopefully they love you in a way that gives you an inkling at times of the way in which uh, Christ uh, loves you. Knowing the courage to aspire to this for Paul for you comes from knowing that Christ's love is transforming you and will transform you and will succeed in transforming you from a sinner to one who is holy in uh, God's uh, sight. Knowing that God has given you responsibilities that you don't uh, deserve and know that, that God is working all things together for good. Not to set you up to fail, but to cause you to overcome. And so... Uh, the courage to aspire, to minister to the Lord as a priest, even to make plans, great plans, specific plans to minister to the Lord as a priest starts with assurance of knowing that Christ is yours and that you are Christ and that you belong to him and that you're righteous in him. In fact, it starts with much the same thing that we're uh, exactly the same thing that we're observing here at the Lord's Supper. It starts with the person of Christ. It starts with the person of Christ who was crucified for you. That's what Paul says about these ambitions that he had. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. And I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me and what he's going to accomplish through me. It's the person of Christ uh, crucified for you. And Christ, the person, has arranged to speak to you in scripture and also to speak to you from the Lord's table where he tells you, sinners, my body is for you who believe uh, in me, who, who uh, abandon trust in yourself, who trust in uh, Christ himself. And my, I, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be transformed. So uh, the Lord's Supper is the place for Christ himself. He arranged it. He arranged this uh, ceremony that we're about to have in order to tell his own children, his own believers, that his body is for us. The power of his resurrection, his crucified uh, uh, penalty is uh, belongs to us. Everything that uh, Christ has belongs to us, and everything that is ours uh, belongs to Christ. And the result is a, a righteousness that cannot be uh, overcome and that will abide forever. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, for what it tells us of Christ, and for what Christ tells to us, that through the gospel, something we can hardly imagine uh, is true. And that is that uh, Christ has come to give his life 
for sinners, for those who are totally undeserving of him, for uh, enemies, which we are uh, to him, and uh, to pay the penalty and uh, to rise again uh, with uh, an unconquerable life of love and holiness in our place. And he gives this all to us freely um, through his word, and it's ours by faith, by simply believing that his words are true and that his words are for us. Father, we pray that as we partake of uh, the Lord's Supper, that you would use the words of Christ to uh, strengthen our faith and uh, to cause us to know you and uh, to give us courage to aspire to offer up uh, an offering uh, to you that would be pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.